The Can He Do That podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Then check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Good evening. Today, I have the privilege of briefing President Trump. On March 8th, representatives from South Korea stepped out into the driveway of the White House and announced something historic. I told President President Trump that in our meeting, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un said he is committed to denuclearization. He wants to sit down with President Trump. And he expressed his eagerness to meet President Trump as soon as possible. And President Trump is game. President Trump appreciated the briefing and said he would meet Kim Jong-un by May to achieve permanent denuclearization. The Republic of Korea, along with the United States... Karen DeYoung is The Post's national security reporter. She's been covering the U.S. conflict with North Korea for years. And as she watched this, she thought the same thing that a lot of us were thinking. Could be a disaster, could be really interesting, could be something important, could be nothing. We just don't know. (laughs) Well, on that heartening note... (laughs) This is Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Martine Powers, filling in for Allison Michaels as she's out on parental leave. And this week, we're talking about North Korea. No sitting U.S. president has ever met with the leader of North Korea, but President Trump says that he's going to do it. And we have a lot of questions. What is the president seeking to get out of this meeting, and what is he willing to compromise on? How is it all going to go down with these two men with very prickly personalities that have publicly said some very nasty things to each other, finally coming face to face? And can President Trump successfully navigate this incredibly delicate diplomatic relationship? And this is a controversial plan both from a symbolic standpoint and also from a practical one. Nothing is changing from our side when it comes to this conversation. This will be any more than a photo op. Kim Jong-un gets his equal footing in his view on the world stage with the leader of the free world. And uh, and the president gets nothing. Yeah, I, I, I definitely don't think that the president's getting nothing. And then, a few days later, the whole thing got more complicated. My commission as Secretary of State will terminate at midnight, March the 31st. Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, was out. It was a shakeup that some people have been expecting for a while, but apparently Tillerson himself learned of his firing in a tweet from the president. And in his place, Trump nominated CIA Director Mike Pompeo. I've worked with Mike Pompeo now for quite some time. Tremendous energy, tremendous intellect. We're always on the same wavelength. Uh, The relationship has been very good, and uh, that's what I need as Secretary of State. I wish Rex Tillerson well. Gina, by the way... So Trump is going to be going through these high-stakes negotiations with North Korea with a brand-new Secretary of State. And in Karen's view, that's one of the big reasons why Trump fired Tillerson in the first place. What was your reaction when you saw that Rex Tillerson had been fired? Well, th- there had been rumors virtually since the beginning and certainly since last summer 
that Trump was not happy with Tillerson, and Tillerson was not happy with Trump. Their styles are very, very different. Their policies, to some extent, are different, and there was a, there's been a whole history over the past year of places where they've very publicly disagreed. Tillerson is not an experienced diplomat, but he is an experienced business leader with lots of foreign experience. He is cautious. He is methodical. He believes in diplomacy. I'm not so sure Trump really believes in diplomacy. And there were times, including on North Korea, where, where Tillerson seemed to be contradicting Trump. What do you think are the potential benefits or drawbacks of kind of making this big change right as he's going into the process of navigating uh, setting up a meeting with North Korea? Right from the start, as soon as this was announced, there was all kinds of discussion about who was going to handle this, who was going to be in charge on the U.S. side of these negotiations. Um, The administration's answer to questions like that is always President Trump is going to be in charge. But obviously, it's not just a question of him getting on a plane and going somewhere and sitting down at a table. So uh, normally, you would have the State Department be in charge of of all of the details of this. A couple problems with that. The State Department's bench is very thin at the moment. Um, There is no... the, The special representative who, for the past several years has been in charge of communications with North Korea to the extent there have been any, has just resigned uh, last month. The There is no assistant secretary confirmed uh, for that part of the world. So you don't have a lot of people there with very deep experience. I think the, um, the thought is a little bit different now with Mike Pompeo. He has been very much more on the same page uh, with Trump than Tillerson. I mean, he has been an advocate for um, the tough sanctions, for the tough talk, and f- in general, beyond the North Korea issue, tough action by by the president. And so I think the president um, feels more comfortable that they're singing out of the same hymnal, and uh, it may be that that will mean ultimately that the State Department will be much more involved. What's different now? I mean, is this, is this a matter of having a new U.S. president or having a new leader of North Korea? Well, there are several theories about what's different now. Um, for one thing, the current government in South Korea, President Moon, uh, is, a, is a progressive and came into office saying that he wanted to improve relations with North Korea. And so he's worked very hard on that. Some people think that what's different now is that the campaign of what the Trump administration has called maximum pressure uh, has made a difference to them. So there have been sanctions on North Korea for a long, long time. Um, The Trump administration worked pretty hard to increase them, to make them really bite, make them really hurt, and to get other countries like China and Russia uh, from slipping around them. One theory certainly in in the Trump administration, is that Trump himself has been so tough, uh, in addition to sanctions, has said that he's not totally averse to some kind of military option vis-a-vis North Korea and that we've scared them. Um, I don't think that that's, that that's necessarily true, but, but who knows, because we don't know what goes on inside North Korea. So what's the, what's the risk here? People who either don't like Donald Trump or don't think he's capable 
of of this kind of high level gamesmanship, or don't think that the administration will have enough time or has the the capacity uh, to come up with a sophisticated approach to the North Koreans. Um, say that that this is all moving too fast, that um, we need to drag it out and and move much, much more slowly than we're moving now. Do you think that's a fair concern that this is all happening too fast? Sure. I think I think that you know we we don't have much to go on except how these kinds of negotiations with adversaries have have gone in the past. If you look at previous arms control agreements um, with the with the Soviet Union, for example, you see that that these are things that go on for years. Other people have argued that, well, yes, this has gone on for many, many, many years with North Korea, and it's basically gotten nowhere. And so why not? Why not just go for broke and, and sit down, have the two leaders sit down, and, and uh, maybe they will make some kind of big deal? Well, so this idea of, like, starting at the top, right, and, and in some ways, dispensing with the sort of machine of the Foreign Service and of diplomats who have made careers on thinking about North Korea and, and analyzing North Korea, what do you think that says about President Trump, the fact that he kind of wants to do it himself? I think it says that he has an enormous amount of confidence in his own ability, what he sees as his own ability, to win over adversaries, um, either by charm or bullying um, and that uh, he believes that the reason why there hasn't been a deal with North Korea up until now is because his predecessors were weak and soft, and he's tough and strong, and that uh, if anybody can do it, he can do it. So who are these predecessors? We wanted to talk to someone who knows what it's really like to be in a room with North Korea, to try to pin down their promises and turn those promises into realities. One of those people is Christopher Hill. He's a former ambassador, and he was also Assistant Secretary for Asia under President George W. Bush. He talked to us from his home in Florida. Hello. Hi, Ambassador Hill. This is Martine with The Post. Hi, Martine. How are you? Are you good? Good. So, okay, you can hear me. Ambassador Hill was one of the lead negotiators in the six-party talks which were a series of meetings with North Korea in the mid-2000s that involved four other countries, South Korea, Japan, China, and Russia. It was like a five-on-one kind of deal, which is a very different dynamic than what President Trump is envisioning now. So maybe if you could just start by setting things up in terms of what your... Oh, you're hearing noises on our side? Yeah. We have a we have a gentleman in here working on some warped floorboards. <laughs> yes, uh, you know, warped floorboards um, are a really good metaphor for what you do as a negotiator because as soon as you get one thing kind of uh, nailed down, something else pops up. <laughs> All right, so that just, wood floor metaphor pretty much sums up what it was like for him to try to get an agreement with North Korea. Going in, Ambassador Hill had a mission from President Bush and Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. He needed to find a path toward denuclearization. The idea was that at the level of Assistant Secretary, I would try to get a deal. 
and perhaps toward the end of it, the Secretary of State would be more involved, and who knows beyond that. The first thing you have to think about is sort of what are your talking points. And essentially, I went to Secretary Rice, I discussed what it is or how I thought we should approach the negotiations. And my view was we should go for a general statement among the six parties to see if we could get uh, uh, North Korea on board for what would be the finality that is uh, denuclearization. And in the process, he ran into a lot of obstacles, which were the same kinds of obstacles that President Trump's team might encounter. Some of those questions come down to basics, like the simple question of where do we meet? Well, the most famous example of all this is during the Paris peace talks on the Vietnam War. There was a six-month discussion of what should be the shape of the table and therefore who should be at the table. In the case of North Korea, there are some obvious options. A nearby U.S. ally like South Korea or China, a country further away like Switzerland or Germany, or a meeting in the demilitarized zone itself, right between North Korea and South Korea. Each of these options delivers a particular kind of message. And then sometimes the North Koreans would come back with surprise answers. They'd say, could we meet in Singapore? And then, of course, when they'd say Singapore or Berlin or something, you'd start huddling up and think to yourself, why do they want to do that? You know, there's a lot of mistrust in these negotiations. And then there's other stuff that they need to sort out, stuff that seems mundane but is actually super important. Stuff like, how long is this meeting going to last? The previous talks that had been, that had been held were sort of three, three and out type talks. That is, uh, people would arrive at Beijing Airport, they'd struggle through the traffic on day one, they'd have some desultory discussions on day two, and by day three they're fighting through the traffic again to get to the airport while the Chinese issued some bland statement. So I, I told the Chinese that I thought the best way to do this was to just sit there and, and until we had an agreement. I think the Chinese might have been a little concerned about the food budget, uh, but they nonetheless said, OK, we got it. So going into a meeting like that, what is your strategy, not just in terms of what you're trying to negotiate for, but like how you negotiate and how you interact with with the folks from North Korea? Well, um, you can uh, sit across the table and shake your finger at somebody and yell at them and then see how that works for you. But usually it doesn't. So usually you have to be businesslike. You have to be serious. But you have to make them feel that they can talk to you. And in making them feel that they can talk to you, make them understand that you have a direct connection to uh, Secretary of State or the President. So I felt it was very important to look authoritative, to uh, indicate that I have been sent here by our President, uh, which both had the added advantage of being true, and, uh, and also keep absolutely focused on what it was that we wanted to get out of this meeting by staying focused on this, by not saying anything that could be uh, interpreted as a some kind of uh, insult by them, which they could use to say they don't want to talk. Uh, I felt it was very important to establish a good business-like fra uh, framework for the talks. I have found over the years 
it's important that if you want to make blood curdling statements about the North Koreans, have someone else do that. Because your job as a negotiator is to talk to them, not make uh, uh, rabble rousing speeches uh, to them. And lo and behold, there are a lot of people in Washington who can be counted on to say rude things to the North Koreans. So you really don't have to do that. On most days, Ambassador Hill would finish up negotiations and then he'd go back to his room and call Secretary Rice to give her a blow by blow of what had happened that day. Those conversations were important, both because it was an opportunity to get advice from the Secretary of State, but also because he knew that people could be listening into his phone call. And it gave him authority in the negotiation room, the fact that he had this direct line to Secretary Rice. Even on, on an open telephone, there was a benefit in having those discussions because people overhearing it uh, would say, wow, he really does talk to Secretary Rice. And she also talked him through some of the blowback. There are a lot of people who hated this process of negotiating, uh, and for a lot of reasons, including the idea that it it uh, uh, a successful discussion with the North Koreans would invalidate the theory of the case that you should never talk to people. It was very useful for me to get the point across to the other sides that I really did speak for the secretary and the president. That's something that Ambassador Hill talks about a lot. All the detractors who criticized him and Secretary Rice for even being willing to talk to North Korea at all. He wrote a book about this time period in his career, and in it, he had this line, quote, nobody liked the idea of talking with them, but nobody had a better idea either. Uh, yes, because uh, in fact, uh, that point uh, that I made in the memoir is, is a point that very much exists to this day. For people who say they don't want any negotiations, uh, they have to look at what the alternatives are, because we don't have the alternative of simply saying we don't want to negotiate with them. Therefore, we're not going to solve the problem. So you have to look at what your other options are. And and really, when you start uh, going through the other options, nothing is very compelling. For example, uh, one option is to keep sanctioning them. Well, that is fine. And I agree wholeheartedly with that. But I'm not sure that sanctions in and of themselves are going to solve the problem. Another idea has has been to uh, to try to uh, somehow uh, find a military option. But when you start looking for military options in North Korea, uh, the list is very short and very fraught. But um, often the criticism and uh, I think withering is kind of an understatement uh, the criticism came from people who haven't necessarily had the experience of negotiating for a used car, but nonetheless felt that our negotiators in these circumstances were completely being taken. And my only point to that is, if you think I'm being taken, get rid of me and find someone else to go in there and uh, see if you can um, if uh, you can do a better job. Ambassador Hill was pretty heartened by how things started out. He felt like all six countries were finding some common ground. And by September uh, 2005, about two, three months after the negotiations started, we finally had the North Koreans agreeing on paper to give up their nuclear weapons. But then things got more complicated. At that point, we needed to move on to verification. 
and this was not easy. Verification protocol was this idea that the U.S. and the other countries had to have some way to check on North Korea's promise that it would give up nuclear weapons. Like, they needed a system of sending in inspectors and knowing that what the inspectors were seeing was real and that North Korea wasn't secretly doing things that they weren't allowed to do, like enriching uranium. But North Korea wasn't really down for that. Sometimes they would engage and, you know, in one minute they'd agree to something and the next minute they wouldn't. I can't say that was a surprise, but it was annoying. And ultimately, that was the sticking point that they couldn't get past. It was fall of 2008, and Bush's time in office was coming to a close. It was frustrating, and uh, when you're in the middle of it, you know, you've come so far, and it's taken you so long to come so far, that uh, you want to salvage it. And uh, so you keep pushing on it, and then uh, you realize... You say to yourself, wait a minute, I've been doing this now for these many months or years. Uh, this isn't working. Uh, and that's why uh, I remember Secretary Rice said to me, uh, Chris, come home. There's nothing more you can do. And she was right. Did you feel like you'd failed? Uh, well, whether I felt like I failed or not, I sure had a lot of people in Washington who felt I had. But uh uh, you know, so uh, they would help me with my self-esteem issues <laughs> in that regard. But no, sir. I mean, I think like anything you do in life, I mean, you do your best, and uh, you know, you leave it on the field. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But somebody has to tell you, game over. And then fast forward to last week, and President Trump announces, "I'm going to go meet with North Korea." What, what was your reaction to that? Well, uh, great skepticism, obviously. But on the other hand, uh, it's better than him saying, I have a new idea for bombing North Korea. So I thought, well, he's now focused on the diplomacy. I'm not sure there's a lot there uh, because I have my doubts whether North Korea is prepared to give up these, uh, these weapons at this point. They've made a lot of progress since uh, I was working on them. But on the other hand, I thought it was positive that he uh, uh, wanted to try to negotiate. Beyond that, however, um, I think the idea of him being the first negotiation is a, is a mistake. Uh, Why? Because once you have uh, had the president go in there and not succeed – I'm not sure who else you turn to. Uh, so uh, what I think would be a better way to proceed is to begin to have a series of discussions with the North Koreans on what they are prepared to do to tease out what they have apparently said about wanting to give up the, uh, the nuclear program in return for some kind of security what do they mean there? Is there something new there? I would think there would be, since this program, since this whole idea has come to us from the South Koreans, I would hope that we would have teams of people meeting with teams from South Korea. I don't see that type of preparation even in the planning stages, uh, let alone the uh, you know beginning to, to talk. 
at least to me, it seems like a lot of the actual action on this, a lot of that is happening inside the White House, right? And that President Trump seems in some ways maybe less reliant on the Foreign Service or on, you know, career diplomats, that he's kind of a do-it-yourself kind of guy. Do you think that there could be benefits to that kind of approach? Um, Well, give me a week and maybe I can think of one. But uh, uh, right now, it seems to me that the president needs to be extremely well prepared. Uh, He needs to have a situation where he understands the history and not to just dismiss the history as all failure. Uh, If he wants to say what we did was a failure, fine. But I think there are things there that he still needs to learn from. And so I think there needs to be in the next, uh, we only have a couple of months, I I think there needs to be an extraordinary amount of preparation and try to prepare the president the way they might prepare him for a debate. He needs to resist the temptation to say yes to to, uh, red herring type ideas. Like what kinds of red herring type ideas? Well, for example, for example, I can imagine the staff will will uh, uh, prepare the president that when if Kim Jong Un were to say something like, "If you get all your troops off the Korean Peninsula, we will do away with our nuclear weapons." Um, we don't want a situation where the president says, "Oh, sounds good to me." Uh, South Korea isn't uh, paying enough of those troops anyway, so I'll bring them back and you'll get rid of their nu- your nuclear weapons. Is that our deal? Uh, well, you know, um, to decouple the U.S. from South Korea uh, is exactly what the North Koreans are looking for. So I would not jump at the opportunity to uh, send our troops home. And yet I think our president needs to understand that in many ways this is the crux of the matter and he needs to be careful uh, not to uh, give up issues like that. You talked about one of your strategies going into talking with North Korea was trying not to be sort of blatantly insulting, right? And I think that in some ways President Trump has taken a different approach to that. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure uh, the comments about Little Rocket Man uh, have had a big effect on the North Koreans. Uh, if you want to try to match them uh, insult for insult, be careful. Uh, uh, I, I know calling Trump a dotard sent many of us to our dictionaries, but they have uh, they have uh, more lines like that. So I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue w- would be, and could be, uh, could actually be in the negotiations when uh, President Trump might want to say something rude to their leader and then see how we do in such a such a setting. Um, there is a role, there is a scope in any negotiations for performance art. There may be moments where you want to stamp your feet, where you want to sort of, so to speak, walk out of the rug shop. Uh, there may be those moments, but I guess my my suggestion is those moments should be literally performance art that is um, not out-and-out anger, but a uh, sort of pretend anger, if you will. What I worry about is the president losing his cool, because uh, the things these people say 
after you've explained uh, why what they're saying is wrong and they say it again, it can uh, be uh, be very angering. And I've seen people kind of lose their temper with them. And I'm not sure that's going to work. I don't know if that will work for us. It may work for them. But but isn't there this madman theory, right, that like uh, because the president um, acts erratically and maybe is difficult to predict that in some ways he's sort of uh, a match for Kim Jong-un. Does that idea hold any water for you? Well, uh, you know, there's a greater than zero percent chance that it might work. But I hate to combine uh, the term madman and nuclear weapons. And uh, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about nuclear weapons. If you had to put money on it, can he do that? Like, can President Trump successfully set up a meeting where he's sitting down with Kim Jong-un and come out of it with some kind of positive development? Not without preparation. Uh, in short, the positive development should be agreed on in advance. And, um, you know, if he can, the question is, can he pull a rabbit out of the hat? That depends on whether he's had adequate preparation, having people stuff the rabbit down the hat. Uh, You know, politicians pull rabbits out of hats, diplomats stuff them down the hat, because rabbits don't live in hats, and so you have to put them in there. And so uh, I don't get the sense that that is happening. If that's not happening, I would assess uh, the probability of success, whatever that means, as fairly low. Still, Ambassador Hill recognizes that there are a lot of variables here that we still don't know. And until we do, it's difficult to project exactly how all of this is going to go down. That's pretty much Karen DeYoung's attitude. The question is, what do you do when you get there? Um, What's the agenda? Um, Are you hoping to come out with a deal? Are you hoping just to say, great, we've broken the ice. Um, Now our teams will sit down and figure out what there is to talk about. I think, again, we just don't know. I mean, this president's very unpredictable. Um, He likes that. Um, North Korea has said virtually nothing about any of this. And Karen comes back to that signature line of hers. Could be a disaster, could be really interesting, could be something important, could be nothing. We just don't know. But there's one thing that Ambassador Hill pointed out that's worth remembering. His takeaway from his experiences with North Korea was this. Even when negotiations don't end up in an agreement, sometimes they're still valuable. They can be a team-building exercise with another country or even with your own staff. And for a president whose overtures to foreign leaders have often involved disparaging tweets and comments like Little Rocket Man, a trip to speak with Kim Jong-un in person might be a good show of diplomacy. Thanks for listening to Can He Do That? from The Washington Post. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Check out previous episodes at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts, or find us anywhere else that you listen. 
Can He Do That is produced by Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and original music by Ted Muldoon. I'm the host, Martine Powers, filling in for Allison Michaels. Special thanks to Karen DeYoung and Christopher Hill for help with this episode. do that, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, Rediscovered. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.